One Week Season. some football we got week 14 coming up dude this slate i'm gonna give a quick intro and then i'll throw it over to you x for some quick thoughts and then i'll wrap it up and lead us into kind of uh the overall macro perspective of this slate but this slate man we have not had a week with so much uh news whether it be injury covid and i've i still have my um my news app up right now because there's still covid news that is filtering through uh as we speak so all this news, all this perceived value in conjunction with a very unique slate in the sense that we don't have these clear, you know, clear games to attack, these clear game environments and these clear blow up spots. We have one game over 50 points. We've got only three in the quote unquote magic range of 47 points to 49 and a half points. And we have the rest of the games are like 44 points and below. It's insane. So all of that is kind of coming together. Whoever like tried to get a head start on this week and um, kind of plan out, you know, how roster constructions are going to look this week, completely has had to re go through that process three or four times this week as new news keeps popping. So with that said, from a macro perspective, X, what are you seeing on this slate? Yeah, this is like the slate of uncertainty, right? And I feel like that word has come up a lot in all the write-ups that you've seen across OWS. But like the basic rundown, one game over 50 points, three uh, 50 point total projected by Vegas. We have three games in that sort of like what, 47 to 49-ish range. Um, and everything else is pretty materially lower. And so we just, we don't have a lot of really highly attractive game environments. There's one clear quote unquote best game, but that game comes with two teams with really good offenses, but also elite defenses. So there's a lot of ways for that to, to see a, to see that game failing, at least failing from a DFS perspective. So this week just doesn't have a lot of certainty on it. There aren't a lot of plays that I can look at and say, this just feels good top to bottom. I cannot poke holes in this play. Like, obviously, any any play can fail on any day. But uh, there aren't a lot of plays this week where I feel really good about their chances of success. And, uh, and yet, chalk always congregates, as it does, right? And so we're still seeing chalk forming. Um, and I think it's forming around areas where there is the field's expressing perceived certainty. That, that's what ownership to me expresses, right? It ex- it's it's the field expressing through how they how how frequently they choose to roster a given player, their perceived certainty that that player is going to have a good game. And so that's a perceived certainty that that encompasses both floor and ceiling and median outcome. Um, and I feel like for the majority of plays this week, uh, they don't feel very certain. Like if you go look at every player over 20% owned, um, or right around 20. I'll give you a quick list. At quarterback, it's Taysom Hill. He's awesome. No holes. Um, not really. Uh, running back, you've got Austin Eckler, Antonio Gibson, Josh Jacobs, Leonard Fournette, Jeff Wilson, Alvin Kamara. Um, I think every single one of those guys, with the exception of Alvin Kamara, have somewhat significant holes you can poke in them. Um, at wide receiver, we've got Mike Williams, Chris Godwin, Hunter Renfro. 
easy to poke holes in every single one of those plays at tight end. We've got like Austin Hooper and Jared cook easy to poke holes in those. So like, it's just a week with that without a lot of certainty. And yet because chalk congregates anyway, because, you know, we have a lot of content providers, a lot of projection systems out there providing the quote unquote best plays and ownership tends to cluster around them. Um, because of that, like we're seeing uh, the field expressing certainty where I feel there isn't much. And so for me on these slates, like I love these slates because it lets me, uh, I, I can find opportunities to pivot to plays that are very similar, right? Like plays that are very, very close to equivalent to the much higher owned play, um, but get much lower ownership. And I don't have to dip into like weak plays to get away from ownership. So I love weeks like this. Likewise, my dude, I absolutely, I'm giddy about this slate. Even all those running backs where you said, you know, even Alvin Kamara, or I guess Alvin Kamara probably has the least amount of holes you can poke in him. Uh, That sounds weird. But um, Alvin Kamara even has, you know, he has uncertainty surrounding him as well. We have, it's his first game. He missed four games. So it's his first game back. Yes, like New Orleans backfield is, um, you know, thinned out via the COVID list. uh, But it's also his first game this year with Taysom Hill at quarterback. We don't know how these pieces are going to come together. We don't know how much practice time these two have gotten on the field together with Taysom Hill. Um, you know, he had what one full practice this week and the others were limited. So we don't know a, kind of a lot about that situation. And that kind of rings true for everywhere you look. So if we know there's this, we have this slate that's like riddled with uncertainty but we know like a couple of specific spots where the field is adopting this like high degree of certainty. And I wrote this up in the end around as well, just highlighting the fact and more so playing a little bit of devil's advocate than purely saying like, these are bad plays because they're not, but there's things that we need to think through that the slate is just kind of disregarding or the field is kind of disregarding on the slate. The first spot obviously is the kind of clear in a way top spot from the field. And that is with the Los Angeles chargers. We have Austin Eckler, we have Mike Williams, and we have Jared Cook. That's hard to even say. Uh, We have Jared Cook that are all expected to combine for like 75% ownership. So that's kind of crazy to think about. It's a great slate when Jared Cook is chalk. (laughs) Oh my God, dude. That's an indicator of a slate being awesome. (laughs) I mean, we'll talk about the tight end position here in a little bit, but all the three top expected ownership for tight ends is kind of hilarious to me, but we'll talk about that shortly. But... With this Chargers, like certainty surrounding the Chargers, we know Keenan Allen is out, right? We know that he is one of, if not the like biggest primary contributors to this offense. He is a second-year quarterback's safety blanket. He is a, a guy who operates in a possession over the middle of the field style role. And he is a player who is a big part of why their offense is able to sustain drives. He's highly targeted, heavily targeted on second and third downs, and he is, you know, a key cog of this offense. He will be out. So what do we know about this situation? We know the Chargers are kind of keeping Austin Eckler into that 65 to 70% snap rate range. So like above like a 1A status, but like below a workhorse status. Do we expect that to change? With Keenan Allen out, I would highly urge the answer to that question is no. We can probably pencil him in for two to three additional looks through the air. Uh, so, you know, when we consider his standard range of outcomes of six to eight targets, now we're looking somewhere in the eight to 11 range. 
That's what we know. What do we know about Mike Williams? Well, we know he started the year off in this X, you know, prototypical X wide receiver role where he was a body control wide receiver. He was running these controlled routes. And after about week five, that has shifted. And we know over the last two months of the season, the Chargers have been extremely uh, hesitant to change his role kind of from this downfield role back into this like prototypical role that he started the year. Do we expect that to change? The answer is we have no friggin' clue. We have no idea how the Chargers are going to game plan here without Keenan Allen. We have no idea. And I guess to add another layer to that, Mike Williams didn't practice at all this week. So do we expect his role to shift if he didn't get any practice at all this week? I would again highly urge that the answer to that question is no. I started also the segment on Mike Williams in the end around with a statement. And that statement was if we knew that Mike Williams was being transitioned back to that prototypical X wide receiver role, he would be the top point per dollar wide receiver play on the slate. But the field seems with a high degree of certainty to think that that situation is going to come to pass because he's expected to garner so much ownership. So if he's still in this downfield role and he's playing a Giants defense who has been rather sticky against opposing wide receivers, uh, they are top 10 in the league in red zone touchdown rate allowed. They have allowed 20 points or less in five of their last six games. Where is all this certainty from the field coming from? Because I am trying to like see it through the eyes of the field and like try and figure out where that amount of certainty is coming from. But those two players, we'll talk about Jared Cook in a minute, but those two players in particular are highly unlikely to see their roles dramatically change with Keenan Allen out. Whose roles should change the most? Jalen Guyton, Josh Palmer, and possibly Donald Parham if we see increased 12, uh, uh, tight end pers- or 12 personnel usage. So those are actually the players that are most interesting to me from a who could see more opportunity sense um, and who is likeliest to see the largest increase in their role in this offense. What say you around this like certainty of the field uh, surrounding the Chargers this week? Yeah, so like it's really common, right? When a guy is ruled out that people flock to the other guys on that team. It's like, aha, Keenan Allen's gone. He gets 10 targets a game, so I can take those 10 targets and distribute them how I want, essentially. It's, it's like, I want, I want them to go to Mike Williams, or I want them to go to Austin Eckler because I want to play Eckler. Um, but that's not actually how it works, right? Like, there's a couple things we have to consider here. One, when you take a really key offensive piece out of an offense, there's greater risk of just the, of the offense just struggling, Right. Like and Keenan Allen is a really key piece of that offense. He is the the short area safety blanket that they rely on to move the chains. It's like him and Eckler sort of the chain movers um, and with then Williams filling in as the the deep threat. Right. The deep, the, the, the deep threat to keep the defense, the defense honest and to open up some big plays. Um, so when you remove one of those key chain movers, there's, there's a greater risk of the offense just struggling. Uh, and so that's not really, I think, being taken into account. And two is, yeah, like, I mean, and I think of it sort of like NBA DFS in some extent, right? Like if you take the starting five in NBA and you take a guy out who gets the biggest change in role, it's not the other starting four in most cases. It's the guy who moves from the bench role to the starting role. 
and gets a lot more time on the court. In this case, it's you know Josh Palmer, Donald Parham, Jalen Guyton. I don't know which one of them will benefit. I like Palmer um, because he's the rookie whose you know whose snaps have been slowly but steadily increasing throughout the year. And Guyton's we've seen kind of trickle off a little bit. I think they're sort of moving away from Guyton towards Palmer as the season goes on. Um, but it, it's those guys who are likely to see the biggest change in role. But there's you know there, there's the fear, there's the overall uh, risk of offensive failure. There's also that the field as a whole is slow to react to defenses changing. <clears throat> we tend to get perceptions of what a defense is and what a team is early in the season, and those tend to be very sticky for us. And, and we see this year in and year out uh, where people think like, oh, this defense has g- gave up a ton of points um, in the first few games. And then by week 10, they're, they, you know, they've had four or five weeks in a row of generally pretty good performances, but their, their seasonal averages are still below at they still look weak they still look below average and people keep targeting them um, but defenses tend to get better as the year goes on and there are certain defenses like the vikings and the falcons for years were kind of like this where very scheme reliant defenses and so they they often tended to open the season pretty weak uh and allowing a lot of points and then they got better as the year went on at a, at a pretty significant rate and people kept targeting them over and over thinking oh they're so bad they're so bad um, and i don't know if the giants fall into that boat necessarily but they've shut down some pretty solid teams lately. So overall, like I think there's there's more risk to the Chargers than the field is assuming. That's not to say the Chargers are going to fail. That's not to say they're bad plays. But if we look at the Chargers who are projected for 26 points and we look at the ownership of their skill position players, like Hilo said, around 75%. If we go look at other teams that are projected for similar point totals, the Cowboys are projected for 26 points. No one's playing the Cowboys. We have Amari Cooper at 10%. Everyone else is under 10%. We have the Chiefs at 29 points. Tyree Kill, 15%. Travis Kelsey, 6.5%. Wow. We have like the Seahawks at 24 points. Actually, there are people playing Metcalf and Lockett. We have the Titans at 26 points. The same total. The highest owned skill position player on the Seahawks is 4%. So like the field is essential and the Broncos, another one, Broncos, uh, 26 points, um, highest end skill position players, Javante Williams at 14%. I, I don't know how that's tied in with Melvin Gordon's health status. Like if that, if that is projecting, if the ownership is based on people expecting Gordon's out or in, I'm not sure. Um, but beyond after that, no one's playing the Broncos receivers and, and the, and you know, the the, uh, the 49ers, um, 25 points. People are playing Jeff Wilson's. He's super cheap. No one else over 10%. And the point here isn't that any of these teams are better necessarily than the Chargers or that they're more likely to score more real points or fantasy points than the Chargers. The point is that these are teams that are projected to score about the same amount of real points as the Chargers are and thus about the same amount of overall fantasy points available to be distributed as the Chargers are. Now, in the Chargers' favor, uh, that, that, that list of fantasy points, that pile of fantasy points is likely to be distributed to a smaller pool of guys, um, except perhaps the Chiefs. <clears throat> but, um, but they're still the same pool of points. And at the end of the day, we don't care. Like any team can have the pool of points distributed in a suboptimal way, right? That, that impacts floor. Right. Like you can have a higher confidence in floor if you have a, a smaller pool of guys for this po- that that pool of points to be distributed to. But uh, it doesn't necessarily impact ceiling. Right. Like we're looking at to win tournaments. 
We need the pool of points to be distributed in a skewed fashion, not even across the board. We need it to heavily favor like one or two guys on the team who put up tourney-worthy scores. And so all those other teams are going to have about are projected at least to have about the same total pool of fantasy points to distribute among their players. But everyone's on the Chargers. Everyone believes the Chargers are going to be the ones who have their their fantasy points distributed in a DFS friendly way. Um, and no one seems to think that the Cowboys or the Chiefs or the Titans or the Broncos or the 49ers uh, are going to have their 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 pool of points distributed in a DFS friendly way. And so for me as a tournament player, that's what I mean when I say I love slates like this because it's not the Chargers could smash here. The Chargers are good plays in a vacuum, um, <clears throat> but I'm not sure that they're really any better than players from those other teams who you're getting at way way lower ownership. And so, like I would like I'm probably mostly off the Chargers this week and would rather target those lower owned teams and just hope the Chargers don't kill me. Same, same, same. Across the board, my favorite Charger play this week is Joshua Palmer. Um, I think he is the one most likely to see an increase to his involvement. So what do teams, what do head coaches, what do teams that are game planning for a game on only three practices? Like, what are they looking for? Are they looking to make things more complex or are they looking to simplify things? Well, they're looking to simplify things, right? So does it make more sense for them to change Jalen? Guyton's role, who has been operating as the wide receiver three in this offense, or does it make it and then move Josh Palmer into that role? Or does it make more sense to keep Jalen Guyton and Mike Williams where they are in their standard roles and then elevate Josh Palmer into an increased snap rate role out of the slot? And to me, it's it's the latter. It, to me, it's, you know, this team is likeliest to elevate Josh Palmer into that kind of um, slot role. Oh, shit. Sorry. Maybe just one. Let's go. Sing second, baby. Sorry, I'm a Naval Academy grad. Sorry, don't hold it against me, but Navy beat Army. Let's go. Uh, anyway, so to me, if they're looking to keep things simple, I think that Jalen Guyton, again, his snap rates have been tailing off. Start of the season, 65 to 70% range. After their buy, he's living in the, you know, he's been all the way from 58% down to 31% snap rate. So he's being kind of moved a little bit away uh, from a, you know, as prominent of a role that he started the year with. And Josh Palmer has been coming on of late snap rates of 34, 42% and 30% in his last three. He's played 30% of the more of the snaps in each of his last five games. So that's kind of my macro, like reading into the situation thoughts um, from this offense. I agree. I am. I have far less certainty one in this offense as a whole than the field does this week for all the reasons that were previously discussed two i have a lot less um i guess i should say certainty surrounding austin eckler and mike williams in particular three i think the big lesson here is we could all agree don't play jared cook uh yeah just don't do that God, he's going to get gonna, 20 points this week, isn't he? <laughs> if you're going to do that, do it and then uh, rub it in my face afterwards. Uh, I will not be playing Jared Cook this week. Uh, bad on paper play. If it works out, it works out. Kudos. That's kind of the macro thoughts around probably the highest visibility and leverageable spot. I think I'll phrase it that way uh, this week. Outside of that, the rest of kind of the macro makeup at the slate 
is driven in large part by all of the moving pieces and unknowns that are kind of introduced through all of these injuries, through all of this COVID news. Thanks a lot, Omicron. Uh, but that said, and ownership is kind of tending to agree with this sentiment, is I think the field is going to struggle this week with narrowing down a tight core of players. I think they are going to struggle particularly at the wide receiver position um, and the tight end positions this week. Um, the tight end ownership, let's move over and cover tight ends first because it makes me chuckle a little bit and I kind of want to get it out of the way a little bit. The top three expected owned tight ends on the slate. Stop me when you hear any level of certainty here. Jared Cook, 20-ish percent ownership. Austin Hooper at 16 to 18%-ish ownership, depending on where you look. And Gerald Everett at 10 to 12-ish percent ownership. So that's like that's like almost half of the field that is going to be paying between 3200 and 3500 at the tight end position. So from a macro, macro leverage perspective, it becomes very clear and very easy to differentiate the overall composition of our rosters this week if we either pay up a little bit or pay all the way up at the tight end position. So, so quick hitting thoughts on these three tight ends uh, and then overall macro on the tight end position X. I'm actually sad because I, I thought Austin Hooper might fly a little under the radar. Um, like I, I like Austin Hooper as a player, like he's a pretty good pass catching tight end, right? He's always been solid. Um, the Browns just have this big timeshare. They've always used a tight end. And the reason why he's popular is that both Dave Njoku and Harrison Bryant are out. Now, the risk here with Austin Hooper is the Ravens blitz a lot. And when there's only one tight end, Cleveland often has, you know, two tight ends in the field and they'll have on any given play, they'll have one tight end stay in the block and the other tight end run a pass route. So the question here is the risk with Hooper is if they only have one tight end of the field, because they only have one healthy tight end, how many pass routes is Austin Hooper going to run? Right. Like, does he just end up being a blocker for half the game? So there is risk there um, in Hooper's favor is it's a pretty thinned out receiving core in general in Cleveland where no OBJ like your lead. Your wide receiver one is Jarvis Landry and your wide receiver two is Donovan Peoples-Jones, both of whom are capable, I guess. But neither of them are like studs. Right. There's no big threat there. Um, so. I like Austin Hooper in a vacuum, but I think there is risk. There, there's risk that he just doesn't run that many pass routes. And then now at his level of ownership, uh, he's kind of off the radar for me. Like I'd rather just take my chances that he, I'd, I'd rather just take my chances that he craters, you know, 15 to 20% of the field's rosters. Um, and that I jump ahead of all of them than than play him. Gerald Everett makes no sense to me at all. Uh, I don't have, how many Seahawks tight ends have we seen put up attorney worthy score the entire season? Like I think maybe once I'd have to go look, but I don't even know. Um, and then Jared Cook is, Jared Cook, he's still on a timeshare and he's still kind of bad. So like, I think if you want to pay down at tight end, I think there are a couple Brock Wright at the minimum salary. I don't even know who this dude is. Um, but if you really want to pay down, he's cheaper than the other guys. And he's going to be filling in for TJ Hawkinson. 
Now that's extreme amount of risk. There's CJ Uzoma, who's 3000, um, who is in a game that I personally want to attack a lot. And he's, he's, a guy that's shown upside on multiple occasions this year. He's he's a guy that the that Joe Burrow trusts in the red zone, and he's a guy that actually has some big play upside. And as we'll come around to later, uh, one area that the San Francisco 49ers defense really struggles in is present is preventing deep passing. And we'll come back to that because that's an important one for me. Um, there's also Ricky Seals Jones who kind of fell off the radar, and you know Ricky Seals Jones. Uh, for Washington, um, Logan Thomas has gone back on injured reserve, sadly. And Washington, the beautiful thing about Washington is they just tend to use one tight end on every snap. Like that's the way they play. Um, unless it's like, you know, someone's coming back from injury and they're trying to give them a snap count. But like when they have a healthy tight end, that tight end has been playing 90% plus of the snaps. And Ricky Seals Jones has been really close to some pretty big games this year. Uh, he was really close to when he got hurt. So, I mean, but there's upside there. And I don't see any of those guys as being that different on paper in terms of like in terms of their expected median points projection outcome or in terms of their ceiling. I don't really see them being any different than any, any of the other guys that we talked about, the three high owned guys. Um, I think that they're shakier a little bit in terms of floor. Right. CJ is almost like a two to five target kind of guy. Um, Brock Wright. We just have no idea because we've never even heard of this guy before. Or I haven't. Uh, we just don't know how he's going to be used. But like in terms of just looking at median median points projection and ceiling points projection, and looking at ownership, like those guys are pretty equivalent to the other cheap guys. And then if you want to pay up, this this is a slate that actually has a lot of really good pay up options. We have. Rob Gronkowski in the highest total game of the week, uh, seemingly fully healthy, back to normal, badass Gronk. We have Travis Kelsey, the best tight end of the league, in an in a in, a, in the highest total. Sorry, he's on the highest team total of the week. The Chiefs team total is a little higher than the Bucks, so highest team total of the week. Prolific passing offense, uh, very narrowly distributed passing offense uh, against a defense that is pretty good at containing wide receivers, but struggles in the middle of the field. We have uh, Kyle Pitts. Um, we I'm not really into Kyle Pitts, but I mean, like, we, there's a lot of tight end talent on the slate. We have we have George Kittle, who guess what? Last week, uh, Debo Samuel missed the game. George Kittle was the pre- he absolutely went absolutely smashed. Uh, guess what? Debo Samuel's out again this week. George Kittle will be the primary receiver again. He's four percent owned or projected for around that. We have Mark Andrews in a matchup against the Cleveland Browns, whose defensive scheme has been vulnerable to tight ends for years. Like there are elite tight end options on the slate. And even if one of the cheap guys has a pretty solid game and puts up 15 points, uh, if one of those the elite tight ends puts up 30 you're still in trouble um, if you even if you even if you get the cheap tight end right. And so like the way I would look at this is I can try to guess on the cheap tight end. I can try to get the cheap tight end right of those three that are really popular. Uh, and if I'm right and I get, you know, 15 points, um, cool, but I could be right and still not get paid off. Right. And like this is the thing like. I think Drew Dinkmeyer is the one who popularizes is the what do you what do you win when you, what do you win when you win when you're right on a play? What's the payoff? Like you have to make sure the payoff is worth the risk. And so if you're going to play into a lot of ownership, you're going to pick a player who's going to be really highly owned. You need to make sure that when you're right, you put yourself in a position to really get paid off. 
And I just don't see that with Hooper and Cook and Everett. I don't see like a 25 plus point ceiling where they can really realistically contend with all of the really elite tight ends on the slate. Because you not only need to get to guess right on which of the three cheap tight ends you're going to play. Um, actually, you can throw James O'Shaughnessy in there at pretty solid ownership as well on the Jags. So like, you need to guess right on which cheap tight end to play. And you also need every one of those expensive tight ends to flop in order for you to get paid off. And that just seems like pretty long odds. Uh, I would rather bet that all those cheap ends kind of flop or, you know, at best do decently, and that I can pick the much lower-owned uh, elite tight end who puts up 25 or 30. And, you know, and in that case, the the what do you win when you win equation skews heavily in your favor because, you know, you've just passed like 50 plus percent of the field with one single play, which is huge leverage. So for me, I think it's about paying up at tight end this week. My man, there was a lot to unpack there. The first is more of a question. Um, last I saw of Debo is he practiced fully in a half-speed practice on Friday, and he's questionable. Um, are you seeing anything different? I on- thought I saw I, – I, I, I sort of like glance at Twitter on the day throughout Saturday, so I thought I, maybe I missed it. Um, I, thought I, I thought I saw something indicating he was expected to be out. Now I'm looking. Okay. Expected. Okay. He's listed as questionable. Coach Kyle Shanahan said he did everything at Friday's practice, but half speed. Okay. I mean, like, that's cool. Like, I feel like if I'm trying to, you know, run at half speed, that probably doesn't mean I'm ready to play <laughs> in a football game. Um, but I don't know. We'll see. Like, but yeah. I will say, like, and I'll, and I'll talk, I want to talk more about this game. We'll talk about it later. But the, yep. the injury yep. news around this game is super interesting. Yep. Okay. Um, secondly, let's. T- Take a look real quick at those top three expected ownership tight ends again. Uh, we have Jared Cook, who's expected to be the highest owned tight end, 20-ish percent, right? He has not played over 58% of the offensive snaps since their week seven bye. Okay, got it. Really, there's not much else that needs to be said there. Um, if you are looking to, you know, looking for a cheap tight end, I want him to be either expected for volume or I want to have a high degree of confidence in the offense scoring a ton of points. And so he doesn't check either of those boxes for me personally. If he does for you, uh, then I'm not going to sit here and talk you out of it, but that's my stance on Jared Cook this week. Let's move over to Austin Hooper and let's look at the offense overall. The... Cleveland Browns basically have had two tight ends or more on the field, 43% of their offensive snaps this year, 22% in 12 personnel, which is uh, two wide receivers, one running back, two tight ends, 21% in 13 personnel, which is one wide receiver, one running back, three tight ends. Okay. So we have a good idea of how this offense has run up to this point. What else do we have going on? Well, obviously, OBJ is gone. We have Jarvis Landry, who is really the only wide receiver who we can bankably project for a near every down role with them typically running an elevated 12 and 21 personnel and even 13 personnel. So what do we expect? Like, how do we expect the Browns to try and win this game against an opponent that they're likely going to have to put up points? Well, we're likely to see both Nick Chubb and Kareem Hunt uh, used heavily. We're likely to see their 21 personnel, so two running backs on the field at the same time, that rate increase. 
we're likely to see Jarvis Landry, you know, playing every di- almost, you know, borderline every snap. We're likely to see Donovan Peoples Jones uh, in a a you know tick below uh, wide receiver two kind of typical snap rate. So probably in the seventy to eighty percent snap rate. And behind that, they're they're down Anthony Schwartz. They're down obviously Odell Beckham and. We're talking about guys like Jamarcus Bradley, Jojo Natson, Lawrence Cager. I don't know who these dudes are. These are all creative players from Madden. <laughs> these are the they dudes. They're not real humans. These are the dudes who are going to see snaps at wide receiver this week for Cleveland. Okay. I let's have look under at, props on all of them. <laughs> <laughs> Hell yeah. So let's, look at the, let's look at some underlying metrics for the Cleveland tight ends. We talked about, their, we typically, or they have multiple tight ends on the field on 43% of their offensive snaps this year. Do we think that's going to continue here? Well, they're probably going to still have, you know, multiple tight ends on the field, and it's probably going to be at a lower rate than their season average, but they still are probably going to have multiple tight ends on the field. Look at their routes run percentages or pass plays on the year. David Njoku, who is out, in a route on 43% of his snaps that come on pass plays. That's heavy, heavy blocking. Harrison Bryant, in a route on 37% of his snaps that come on pass plays. Austin Hooper, who everybody's going to play this week, 39% on, or 39% of his snaps, he is in a route that come on pass plays. So there's not a lot of upside there if we're thinking, about like how this team is likely to attack this this uh, week to try and get a W here against a very very difficult divisional opponent. All right, so I think we beat tight ends uh, to death. That's kind of my thoughts. Gerald Everett, yet yeah, um, he's kind of whatever. I'm not playing him at ownership ever, uh, even if there's a fire. Uh, that is it. I think that's yeah, like, all I'm I got conf- on I'm tight end position. Confused by Gerald Everett, like is DK Metcalf and Tyler Lockett are both healthy, right? Like I didn't miss something there will disley's healthy no nope. right yeah. like why i just don't get it Gerald everett has not been played all season his biggest game of the season is 14.7 DraftKings points um <clears throat> he's you know this is an offense that very clearly leans on lockett and metcalf and everyone else is sort of fighting for scraps i don't get that one like i'm just i'm i i would love to hear someone make the case for why he's a good play because i'm just that's one i'm just confused by most chalk i yeah. at least understand you know i might not agree but i get it if ever I was going to go down on a single play at a single position, it is Travis Kelsey at the tight end position this week. I'm just going to throw that out there into the metaverse. Uh, yeah, probably wondering why we spent so much time on tight end this week. This is a major funnel for both ownership and roster construction for the week. So I wanted to cover this position pretty heavily uh, and before we continue. With that said, anything else to add at tight end X? Oh, play Kelsey. God. Or if you don't yeah, play Kelsey, yeah. play someone yeah. who can outscore Kelsey. Yeah. True, that's, true. That, that's my that's how I'm playing it. You can you do you do you boo, but that's I agree. Same page. Let's talk about some of these game environments before we go uh the rest of the positions. Um and in talking about this game environments, we'll also uh kind of fold in some of the players that we should be targeting for under-owned 30-plus point upside. And I say 30-plus point upside because there really aren't any players with a 
high confidence level that we can say can hit 40 plus, you know, like we typically have on a standard week. So we're going to lower our bar a little bit and talk about some underground players that have the 30 point upside uh, in that discussion. So X game environments, any games that are residing outside of the top four game environments. So uh, Dallas, Washington, Las Vegas, Kansas city, um, Buffalo and Tampa Bay and San Francisco and Cincinnati, any games outside of those four, that you are going to be targeting this week for the possibility of a you know positive game environment. Yeah, so the two that I think could generate, <clears throat> sorry, excuse me, there, there's four, and two of them I I think I want like I I could see the game going significantly over with both teams contributing, and the other two I could see sort of one team just curb stomping the other and doesn't need to bring back. Um, although you could you could feasibly use one. But uh, but um, I'm still interested in playing players from the the winning side. And so, really briefly, the two the two that I like for back and forth are Dallas at Washington, um, where <clears throat> Dallas's defense has been good, but they're an aggressive defense. And what that means is like it seems like they try to go for turnovers every single time. Uh, they're not just trying to like grind it out and like defend passes. Like they're trying to get picks. And so the downside of that approach is that they don't, they can give up some really big plays and Washington has a really explosive playmaker on their offense that no one's going to play. And his name is Terry McLaurin. He's a pretty good receiver and he's going to be like 5% owned. Um, <clears throat> Dallas's offense is elite. Uh, there's, you know, Washington is Washington is one of the league's bigger pass funnel defenses. It's really, really hard to run against. Dallas's run game is also somewhat dysfunctional, and they've, we've been seeing Dallas elevate their passing play rate lately. So I love Dallas at Washington um, with McLaurin as the clearest bring back, although I think I would do Ricky Seals-Jones as well. Um, then Baltimore at Cleveland is like a shockingly low total game, and that probably is the likeliest way for it to play out. But like those games, <clears throat> we've seen like this sort of barbell-shaped range of outcomes instead of like a normal distribution range of outcomes for certain types of game environments. And this is one of them. We've seen these teams play to a very high total in the past. It was last year. Um, but I think we could easily see this game go over 50 and that wouldn't surprise me. It would surprise me if it was the highest scoring game of the week, but I think we could easily see it get over 50. Uh, we can see, you know, Lamar Jackson has tremendous upside in competitive games. Um, we have, you know, the, the, the Browns have some talent on their roster, right? They have like Donovan Peoples Jones, who we've seen score multiple long touchdowns this year. They have, uh, you know, Nick Chubb. They have they have guys who can score from anywhere. So you know they can put up a fight. The Ravens, their offense tends to be very very game script sensitive. But if they're behind, we've seen them like in the past with the Ravens. It was really hard to project Lamar for more than like thirty pass attempts in any game. Um, and, and when he got, if the Ravens fell behind and Lamar was forced into a position of being a pure pocket passer, he usually kind of fell apart. Um, and so look, Lamar as a pocket passer was like a, a thing to fear. Um, that has not been the case this year. He's been good as a pocket passer. He's led like when he's, when they've had to abandon the run, he's had to play catch up. He has led them on some really quick, efficient drives. And so, you know, and they have some elite weapons in Mark Andrews in, in, in Marquise Brown, uh, in, I want to I want to play Bateman, but he's been playing behind Sammy Watkins. Uh, but so like 
that game could, you know, feasibly go over. And then the two games where I want to target where I don't necessarily need to bring back are games that actually look extremely similar to the Chargers game with the Titans against the Jags and the Broncos against the Lions. In each case, uh, the the home team, the home favorite has a to- game has a total of about 26 points. The visiting team has a total of around 17 or fewer points. So it's expected to be a pretty one-sided affair. Um, but everyone's playing the Chargers. No one wants to play the Titans and the Broncos. And so the Titans, you know, and, and again, there's there's uncertainty uh, in on both on the Titans and the Broncos about where the ball's going. I think there's some uncertainty on the Chargers too that the field's not recognizing as Hilo and I talked about. But on the Titans, you've got an uncertain running back situation where last was it last time we saw the Titans, it was like both Dontrell Hilliard and uh, Donta Foreman both went for over 100 yards. And um, this is a great matchup. You've also got Julio Jones at like 5,400 as the wide receiver one. Like Julio Jones with no A.J. Brown at 5,400 is shockingly cheap. And yes, he'll probably get hurt on the first drive and break your heart. Um, and I hope he you does stop that. that right now. But like, I'm definitely going to play. How do you not play a 5,400 Julio Jones when A.J. Brown is out? Like, that's insane to me. Um, and the Broncos, like, okay, uh, Melvin Gordon was out. Javonta Williams had an absolutely bananas game against the Chiefs. And so there's a question on this table now, which is, let's say Melvin Gordon plays. What snap percentage does Melvin Gordon get? Does he go back to being a 50, does it go back to 50-50 timeshare? I think the expectation all along has been that Javante Williams would start out with the smaller end of the timeshare and his role would grow throughout the season. Um, it took an injury for his role to really grow, but he certainly proved himself exceedingly capable. Does he do they go back to Melvin Gordon, Gordon being the lead back again? Like Javante Williams is their rookie guy. He's their long-term guy. So I don't know. I mean, I, I think there's uncertainty there, right? Like, but Javante Williams could still be the guy, or he could not be the guy, but he could still smash because it's the freaking Lions. Uh, or or the touchdowns could come through the air, right? Like no one's playing the Broncos pass game. This is a team with a, like when I see a team total of 26 and no one's playing the guys on that, on that team and they're really cheap. So you can get like really cheap upside for, you know, for like that. No one wants to play. Like I want to play that. I will. I want to, I want to play some of that. I have a harder time with Fant, um, but I, I could definitely play some Jerry Judy or, or some Cortland Sutton here. So yeah, those are the, those of those of the low game environments. Uh, you you I see you, you set the question up, sort of box me out of my favorite game, you jerk. Um, but uh, I know I know we'll get to that. Yes, sir. So those are mine. I will add. Uh, I don't disagree with anything there. Uh, Julio Jones. Well, we'll we'll get to him here shortly uh, when we talk about wide receivers. But there's a lot of these wide receivers in the sub six k range that uh, carry nice nice range of outcomes uh, that are not expected to garner any ownership. So we'll talk about that here shortly. I will add to that list New Orleans at the Jets. I cannot believe that you didn't cover attacking the Jets, dude. I wasn't gone for that long, man. Golly. Just, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> we spend too much time talking about the Jets as it is. <laughs> yeah. So let's talk about these Jets real quick. What is going on? They just put Elijah Moore on the IR. Corey Davis is on the IR. Um, Michael Carter is on the IR. So like, who the hell do they have left? Well, it's basically like Jameson Crowder and Keelan Cole's coming back. Uh, and Tevin Coleman is also out for this game. So, like, who the hell? They have Ty Johnson, uh, who's going to be sharing snaps with some dude I've never heard of. Uh, hold on. I'm going to look that up. Uh, what the hell is his name? Oh, is it Walter? No, it's Bodden. I don't know. One of them. Nick Bodden or, uh, or Walter. Austin Walter. Anyway, 
So the backfield's a mess. They're playing a New Orleans team who gives up the fewest fantasy points per game to the opposing running back position. So, and we know that the Jets are going to be playing catch up. So we're also, we also have a higher than normal degree of confidence in both Taysom Hill and Alvin Kamara this week, right? Okay, so I'm not going to regurgitate everything I wrote up in the end around, but I very much so like a team stack of Taysom Hill and Alvin Kamara this week. Uh, and I also like turning it into a game stack with Jameson Crowder as the likeliest last man standing. And we know he's still got juice in the tank uh, on this Jets offense that we know is going to be throwing. You know, Zach Wilson is between 32 and 38 pass attempts in every game, but one, that one game was there weird win over Houston a couple weeks back. So we know they're going to be passing. We know they're going to be in catch-up mode. We know that they have nobody to throw the ball to. We know that the Saints uh, allow 250 pass yards per game. We know that they've allowed touchdowns to opposing wide receivers. All this is kind of ending up to like, let me just grab all of the projected upside from New Orleans in Taysom Hill and Alvin Kamara and bring it back with the only piece that we can expect anything from from the Jets. If they can, if the Jets can put up 14 plus points on the scoreboard here, it's likely going to keep New Orleans uh, attacking because this is like as much of a must-win game for them as there could be. They're currently sitting one game behind the seventh uh, playoff spot in the NFC, but they are like all the way down the list on tiebreakers. So they basically need to make up two games to make the playoffs. That was a lot. I liked the, that game a lot. Another spot that I think is going to go under-owned is Carolina, everybody not named Cam Newton. Uh, DJ Moore, still extremely talented. He's had some extra time to rekindle that connection with Cam Newton. And then we have this running back who nobody is seemingly wanting to play, who is likely going to be a 70 to 80% plus snap rate player in Chuba Hubbard that uh, is highly, highly intriguing to me. Oh, yeah, 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 that, yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> I actually kind of like Abdullah. Yeah, I mean, it's not crazy. He's been seeing targets. But uh, yeah, so the, that's uh, another side of a game that I think is attackable at low ownership. All right. Let us jump into some positional talk real quick. And we are almost certainly going to talk about these other game environments uh, and hit that one that you wanted to talk about. So we'll, so go over to, <laughs> we'll go over to the quarterback position. Very, very interesting dynamic with the quarterback position this week because we have perceived safety amongst these pay-up quarterbacks. Patrick Mahomes, Josh Allen, Tom Brady, uh, Lamar Jackson, and Dustin Herbert are also going to see ownership. Dak Prescott is also going to see ownership. So the top like seven or eight priced quarterbacks are all going to have ownership this week. And they are all in game environments that have a wider than perception range of outcomes. On the other side of that coin, we also have these two pay down quarterbacks with high rushing upside in Taysom Hill and Cam Newton. So where does that leave us overall? Well, we can project with a pretty fair, you know, pretty high degree of certainty that majority of the rosters are going to have quarterbacks on them from one of these two pricing tiers. That is going to leave the middle tier pretty much overlooked. We're talking about Russell Wilson, Ryan Tannehill, Joe Burrow, Derek Carr, Garoppolo, Bridgewater, Heineke, uh, that kind of range of quarterbacks. So 
I'm not sitting here saying like those players are better plays than any of the aforementioned quarterbacks. I'm just saying they're going to not have any, any, any ownership this week. That said, I talked about my Taysom Hill love uh, a little bit earlier. Cam Newton is completely in the same uh, range. Uh, and I, I unpacked Taysom Hill a little bit heavier in the end around. I will not regurgitate that here. What are you seeing from a macro perspective at this position this week, X? Yeah, you took the good. So I think I want to note here that there's a significant difference in how I would think about quarterbacks from site to site. And the reason why is that Taysom Hill and Cam Newton are shockingly inexpensive on, on DraftKings. Like they're down about as cheap as you find any starting quarterback. They're priced down with like Trevor Lawrence and Jared Goff. On FanDuel, um, you know, Taysom Hill is the, he's he's priced, he's not the most expensive quarterback, but he's like the seventh most expensive quarterback. Cam Newton's like the ninth most expensive quarterback. So they're more in the the range of like the mid to upper mid tier. And so that kind of changes the, the calculus a little bit for me. Uh, there's still strong plays on FanDuel. Um, on Yahoo, if you're playing at Yahoo, as I keep trying to tarp on everyone to play on Yahoo, uh, they're both priced a little below. They're kind of more in the mid, uh, not not quite so much upper mid as on FanDuel. Um, and the reason why this is important is on DraftKings, I think there's a case to be made that says, even if you're stacking another game, just play Taysom Hill or just play Cam Newton. I think I think I think I prefer Taysom Hill personally. I think his ceiling is similar uh, and his floor is higher. Um, Cam is more prone to just disaster i think we we haven't seen a Taysom hill disaster game he's he's exceeded expectations in like every game he's he's played start to finish um so i think there's a case to be made that just says just play Taysom hill and if you want to stack those other games cool go for it um but you can get you know uh, you can get a comparable score from Taysom hill uh with actually probably less risk than by trying to pick like which of the much more expensive quarterbacks could possibly put up, you know, a 30 point or 35 point game. Um, if I were doing MME, I probably would not have 150 Taysom Hill. Um, but I think that there's a case to be made that just says, like, you can just simplify things and be like, I'm just going to play Taysom Hill at quarterback and I'll, you know, build my game stacks without the quarterback included. Um, but if you do want to go for, you know, other quarterbacks, uh, on DraftKings, Dak Prescott and Russ Wilson both stand out a lot to me at their prices. I think that they're priced. Uh, they're kind of priced in like the mid range and, you know, Russ has been bad. Right. But like we saw some life from Russ last week and he's got a great matchup here. Dak is in one of my favorite game environments to attack. And, and so like, I love, I love Dak. Um, Joe Burrow, I think is plausible if you want to target that game. And we'll talk about that more. Although honestly, if I were targeting that game, given Joe Burrow's price, like I'd probably just play Taysom. Um, he's priced pretty close to Taysom Hill. And it's like, well, I pay a little bit more for Burrow. Like, there's a good chance, even if Burrow has a good game and that game really is successful, there's a good chance that Taysom still outscores Burrow. Um, or the other way to view quarterback is like you need like you need either Taysom to fail, which is unlikely outside of an injury, or you need to pick someone who has the ceiling to smash Taysom if they hit their ceiling. So like if Taysom's ceiling is 30 points, uh, then you need someone who can get to 35 or 40 on a good day. And the list there is short, right? It's like Lamar Jackson. Um, it's Josh Allen. It's maybe Patrick Mahomes, although without the rushing upside, it's sort of it's hard for a pocket passer to hit 40. Um, it, you know, probably not Tom Brady, maybe Justin Herbert. So, like, I think those are the lenses through which I view quarterback, right? Like Dak definitely has that kind of upside, um, but you need someone who can who can hit 35 or 40 points 
where you know where Taysom Hill can have a good game, but if your quarterback that you're paying more salary for hits their ceiling, they can outscore Taysom materially by more than you know two or three points. They can outscore him by five to ten points. So that's that's how I'd view it. Um, otherwise, like I I don't have it's hard to have any interest in any quarterback for me that's like priced in the Taysom range, like under six K. It's like if you're if, why would you not just play Taysom Hill there? Um, he has such a better projection, better better floor ceiling than any of them, and and as long as he doesn't get hurt, he's highly likely to outscore all of them. Yeah, man, Taysom Hill. When was the last time you saw a player with a median <laughs> projection? Just shy of four x salary multiplier. That means it's fifty percent. Do you remember last season when Taysom Hill was a tight end on FanDuel? Yeah, dude. <laughs> that was awesome. Like Taysom Hill, his median projection is just over twenty-two fantasy points. That's just shy of four x. That's a median projection. He also has the third or fourth highest raw ceilings. So 90th percentile outcome, depending on where you look. So I am going to be 100% Taysom Hill. I'm going to simplify things where I can this week. I'm going to look for certainty on a slate that does not have it and look to basically leverage elsewhere. Uh, 100% agree with that. If Taysom Hill comes in at 20% ownership, which is about where he's sitting now, uh, that's probably two to two and half times too low here so uh i will basically view that as leverage and let the field kind of make the mistakes i'll take the certainty where i can get it this week i mean which would you Those feel my, better about right like would you feel better about 20 percent owned Taysom hill or 20 or 28 percent owned mike williams right like 20 percent is high for a quarterback but i'd sure feel a lot better about Taysom hill personally dig it all right man let's uh let's run over some running backs real quick i'll let you take the lead uh and then i'll bring up my thoughts in the rear uh ready set go yeah so i will i'll preface this by saying i'm generally uh not afraid to play chalky running backs i don't tend to think about ownership as much at running back as i do at other positions it's not as it's not as destructive um because running backs tend to have a narrow narrower range of outcomes right um, so I'm okay playing some Austin Eckler. I will probably be underweight the field in my in my uh, Yahoo MME entries um, in that wonderful overlay tournament they have. By the way, they have that overlay tournament. By the way, if you didn't notice this, uh, if you didn't see this already, uh, oh good, he's in the audience. I can call him out. Uh, Jay Fresh Picks uh, of our um, of our OWS fame won the Yahoo Baller last week. I th- oh god, I think that was him. I hope I got their name right. I think that was it him was. who run it. it. Okay, was. cool. Thank God. Um, yeah, he won that. He won that giant Yahoo overlay tournament last week for hundred thousand uh, dollars. If you're not playing the giant Yahoo overlay tournament, it's free money. Please do it. Um, anyway, I will have some Austin Eckler. Um, I will have some Leonard Fournette. I will have some Josh. Like Josh Jacobs is actually a pretty good play. He's a risky play. He's a low floor play. Um, but especially if what's his name, um, Jalen Richard misses. He's a pretty good on paper play. Um, I'll play Antonio Gibson. Like Antonio, actually, sorry, let me correct that. I will play Antonio Gibson if JD McKissick is out. If JD McKissick comes back, I don't have nearly as much interest in like super, super chalky Antonio Gibson. Um, but I, I generally don't mind the chalk at running back nearly as much. Um, I will like I think there's some there's some areas of uncertainty at running back as well that I think we can look at. 
Uh, let's sorry, let me browse. The, where, where did the guy? I had that sort in a weird order. Um, I mentioned Javante Williams as a guy who like still has a really strong ceiling, even if Melvin Gordon comes back. Melvin Gordon introduces some uncertainty to his floor, but his ceiling is still really good. Um, if you're willing to take the risk, like I would say Saquon Barkley is attractive, but he's actually projecting for a fair bit of ownership, which makes me feel like when you take risks on highly volatile plays, uh, you want you generally those risks to be low owned, right? Like you don't you again. It's, it's what do you win when you win? You want to get paid off, um, and I feel like you're you're not getting paid off with Saquon Barkley at fifteen percent plus ownership. Um, but we've got like we've got Jeff Wilson, who last time we saw him as the lead back, he I think I want to say he saw over twenty touches, um, just missed or Jeremy Garoppolo sort of just missed him in the end zone for a passing touchdown. Um, you've got. But some other running backs who project for significant workload, the Tennessee backs like Donta Foreman and Dontrell Hillard. uh, This is a projection thing, right? Um, If you look at their projections and most sources, they're projected for almost equivalent production. And that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to split the workload 50-50. It means that the projector doesn't know how to distribute the workload. And so they they split it evenly. Um, This is common in the projections world. And so what's likely is that one of them is more the lead back uh, or that one of or that based on game flow, uh, one of them takes over or based on who's running hot. So I would personally bet on Donta Foreman. I think Hillard, Hilliard is generally more of a more of a receiving back or generally viewed as such. Um, but I think either could be viable, right? Like there, there, there's risk there, but you're also getting the lead back for a really high total team at home against a terrible defense um you can do the same with uh where to go um either uh chuba hubbard or amir abdullah and again this is one where again like the reason chuba hubbard is not projecting super well is because the projections have him splitting work with amir abdullah and that's not really been how the panthers have used their running backs historically they're generally a pretty like one back heavy like primary back team so in all likelihood one of those two guys actually acts as the primary back tomorrow and sees you know 65 70% of the snaps and the majority of the work um but the projections are sort of middling it so you could take a guess there and say and hilo's right it's probably more likely chuba because that's what we've seen in the past but there's a little bit of hype building around adula around saying like uh, Hachuba has not performed when we've seen him. Um, they might be ready to make a switch, blah, blah, blah. I don't know. Um, but I think you could you could take shots there. Um, Devonta Freeman is, and it feels weird talking about a Ravens back, um, but and, because the Ravens are normally one of these split backfield teams, and you've, you know, you're losing touchdown equity to Lamar, obviously. That's a risk you take playing any running back on a team with a rushing quarterback. Um, but the Ravens have also generally had two or three running backs. They rotate in significantly, and so it's been very rare to see a Ravens running back get to 20-plus touches. Um, but Devonta Freeman, in his last few games, has seen 22, 17, 22 opportunities. And that's with, let's see, 15 targets in those three games. That's a pretty solid workload for a back at 5,700. Um, last week, we were all playing Jamal Williams uh, on Detroit because we thought, aha, you know, we've got the lead back. Deontay Swift is out. We've got the lead back, and he's going to get a lot of work, and he's cheap, and blah, blah, blah. He's not priced for the role, even though the matchup's tough. This week, Detroit has the exact same situation, except it's two guys whose names we can't pronounce. 
Actually, I can pronounce the second one, Jefferson. I can do that one. Um, the other one I cannot pronounce. Um, but there's two backs for Detroit, and I don't know which one's going to be the lead back. But these areas of uncertainty where it can really pay to lean in on on tournament in tournaments where we don't know for certain. And when we don't know, what the what most people tend to do is sort of throw up their hands and say, I'm not touching that situation. And that's and that's what we're seeing with a lot of these situations. Situations, right? People don't know what to do with the Titans backfield. And so the Titans backfield projects for almost no ownership, despite being a 26 point total home favorite. Um, you can play Melvin Gordon and believe that Melvin Gordon does go back to his 50 50 role and that no one's going to play him and that he still has a ceiling and that he's cheap for the role uh, in that matchup, right? Like, there's a lot of other running back options. So again, this is a week without a lot of certainty. And I kind of ran through a big list of a bunch of them. Like, the chalk plays are not terrible right like there this is a week where it feels like there's not a lot of strength at the running back position to me um so the chalk plays are not awful the the play i probably feel the strongest about is alvin Kamara, but even there like as hyla pointed out earlier like you can still poke some holes there so on a week without a lot of certainty i want to go towards where i feel i can get upside at low ownership oh sorry i should also mention clyde edwards hilaire who feels like he's been in the business of disappointing dfs players for like two two five years now, even though I think he's only in the second career year. Um, but Clyde Hilaire has actually, he has run much better this year. Like he's been a better player. Uh, he has two games over 20 fantasy points so far. Um, and, you know, we, we look for 4X, but it's worth noting that on a week that's somewhat weak at running back, you might not need 4X. You might be, if you can get, you know, there might only be three or four running backs who score over 20 fantasy points this week. And if that's the case and none of them score over 30, then, you know, just getting over 20 fantasy points from both your running back spots could be enough. And so Clyde Edwards-Hilaire, I think, is, a, again, big home favorite, uh, favorable matchup. And I think there's, you know, there's some opportunity there, too. That's a lot. There's a lot of running backs in play and none of them are, like, super strong. Yeah. And there's a lot of ownership that uh, is congregating on a, some of these guys we've talked about. Um, I think we need to at least mention Jamichael Hasty uh, as oh, somebody yeah, yeah. as somebody that you know is just a pretty much a leverage off of the field certainty. Jeff Wilson, obviously, up above twenty percent expected ownership. Hasty, um, all that. Hasty would need is some, you know, another weak performance from Wilson, or, you know, he just as recently as last week, um, re kind of retweaked his knee injury. So another little tweak to that knee and Jamichael Hasty. Uh Todd mentioned him when we spoke earlier today. Uh, so I like that call. Uh, again, MME only play, but uh, but one that carries theoretical upside. Um he's gonna have a pass game role anyway. Prime you know? Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. Not, it's not like he has no work. I remember if I could actually, if I can share a story really quick. Uh, I remember week one, right? Remember week, remember week one when Trey Sermon was unexpectedly a healthy scratch, and yeah. everyone flocked to Raheem Mostert. I remember this Cubs fan who is one of the sharpest tournament players like in the world uh, was texting people saying, "Hey, who's the new running back two on San Francisco?" And like found out it was this guy that no one really considered called Elijah Mitchell. And he played a whole bunch of Elijah Mitchell and received for he must start got hurt. And Elijah Mitchell scored over 20 points at minimum salary and zero ownership. Um, and, you know, the hasty has a role. He's minimum salary. You know, he's going to have a role regardless of Wilson. 
of Wilson's health status. He could have a bigger role than we expect anyway, which is possible but unlikely. Um, or but the touchdowns could just flow his way, or the Bengals could get up and they could use Hasty more than uh, more than Wilson in catch-up mode. Or Wilson could get dinged up, right? There's there's path, there's multiple paths. This is not just a situation of like if Jeff Wilson gets hurt, then Hasty could smash. Like there's there's paths for Hasty outside of that. Yep. Sorry, I was dicking around and missed uh, the button on the phone. Uh, yep, I agree with all of that. Um, I think a, a primary decision point from the field this week is likely going to be Austin Eckler or Alvin Kamara. Uh, when that is the case, uh, easy leverage is to play both or play neither. Uh, so that is also on the table this week from an easy leverage perspective. Um, for my money, again, um, I would put it on Alvin Kamara personally. Um, and that is primarily leveraging the, uh, primarily leveraging the, the ownership delta uh, between Austin Eckler and Alvin Kamara. Alvin Kamara, I think if he did not, if he was not coming off of four straight missed games, if he was not playing in his first game with Taysom Hill this season, he would have probably higher ownership than Austin Eckler, but that is keeping his ownership in check, currently projected below 20%. So I will look to leverage those unknowns. Um, I feel a lot more comfortable going there than I do with putting my eggs in the Austin Eckler is going to see a role increase basket. The, my other top play at the running back position on the slate is Josh Jacobs. And I'm going to talk to the positives. Uh, if you've listened to uh, both of JM's solo pods this week, you heard the negatives. So I'm going to be the kind of devil's advocate and list the positives. Um, obviously, this is a if Jalen Richard misses. I still have not seen any update to his status. He has still uh, been working his way um, through the COVID list there. So Josh Jacobs, uh, played 85% of the snaps last week. That was in a game where Kenyon Drake, uh, was lost for the season. He set a career high with nine targets. And now we have Darren Waller out again. Uh, so thinking about how Las Vegas is likely likeliest to attack Kansas city, where we know that Kansas city's defense is built on limiting deep intended air yards. So they've still given up a modest or a moderate to high uh, yards per completion allowed. And that's primarily been due to yards after the catch. There's still a defense built to force opponents to attack the shallow to intermediate areas of the field, but they have been less disciplined in tackling after the point of reception. So we have a team with a bunch of downfield weapons in Las Vegas minus one of their underneath weapons in Darren Waller. Um, and the other underneath weapon um, is expected to garner some pretty heavy ownership once again in Hunter Renfro. Uh, his price is up to a season high at 6,100. Um, and it would take a lot going right for Hunter Renfro to see a ceiling here. So with all that in mind, Josh Jacobs... If Jalen Rashard is out, likely again to see, you know, 80, 75 to 80% plus snap rate, likely to see um, some solid pass game usage uh, and, and is coming in at a modest to high. We'll say it's high at 25.5% ish uh, expected ownership. 
But this is a guy where I am more willing to bet on game environment. Uh, I talked up to my Travis Kelsey love a little bit earlier. But this is a guy where I am a little bit more certain uh, where, again, the f- ownership around a lot of the running backs is extremely spread out this week. So Austin Eckler, Josh Jacobs are kind of my two top running backs on the slate. We talked to uh, Jeff Wilson and Jamichael Hasty uh, a little bit earlier. I really, yeah. I th- that, do you mean Alvin Kamara and Josh Jacobs? Yeah. What did I say? You said Austin Eckler. Oh, son of a bitch. Yeah. I just, I just want to make sure people got the right idea. Yeah. Thanks, bro. Yeah. You could be my wingman any I got day. You. <laughs> Sweet. I also have the same uh, similar thoughts uh, on Saquon Barkley as X does. Um, I played him pretty heavily last week, and that was at uh, about half of his current projected ownership for this week. So um, again, where the field is viewing certainty, I'm questioning everything this week. Um, the last kind of name that I'll throw out there is Cordero Patterson. I have... I'm going to come clean. I have not played Cordero Patterson once this season, um, but as the you know primary cog of this offense um, in a game against Carolina, and the most important thing here is the low expected ownership, um, primarily due to his inflated price. Uh, I like him for uh, some sprinklings in MME. All right. Another for running back. Dude, let's get to my favorite position of the week in the wide receiver position. There are ownership is basically all over the place at the wide receiver position this week. We obviously expect heavy ownership on Mike Williams and Chris Godwin and Hunter Renfro. Uh, Those are the only three wide receivers currently projecting for more than 20% ownership. We are also expecting some pretty heavy ownership on the Seattle wide receivers. And that is relative ownership based on what we've seen from that offense this year. I played a good chunk of Tyler Lockett last week, and that was at like 3.54% ownership. Um, this week, DK Metcalf up close to 20%, Tyler Lockett around 13 to 15%. So those are guys that I want to play at lower ownership uh, than I would much rather play at lower ownership than higher ownership. Then we start getting into this kind of moderate ownership range of guys who carry some of the highest ceilings at the wide receiver position. We have Tyreek Hill at, you know, 14 to 15% ownership. Mike Evans, again, is kind of like the, the redheaded stepchild in Tampa Bay. Like no one wants to hang out with him. That was really rude. Uh, (laughs) No one wants to play him this season. Um, Stefan Diggs uh, is expecting to garner modest ownership, but I don't think that he carries that same upside as these other two that we just previously mentioned in Tyreek Hill, Mike Evans. The two that I think carry much, much higher percentage chance of hitting their ceiling this week, and they are not expected for any ownership, X covered these earlier, and that is CeeDee Lamb and Terry McLaurin in the same game. So we know both of these wide receivers are projected for sub-5% ownership, so nobody is playing them to begin with even less people are going to be playing them together with each of them coming in above 7K in salary. So when you get like these two players that have correlated upside that nobody's playing and nobody's playing together, there is a high, high leverage scenario there with CeeDee Lamb. Even Amari Cooper and um, 
Michael Gallup as well. Uh, my money is going to be on CD Lamb this week for a lot of the reasons that I covered in the end around. Um, and Terry McLaurin just makes for such a juicy bring back because he's had these barbell outcomes this season. He is either completely busted for his salary or he has provided a solid point per dollar score. So love those guys. I'm going to kick it over to you X before I talk about some of these mid tier <laughs> pricing guys that I really, really like this week. Yeah, I love Terry McLaurin. Um, I love CD lamb. I love all the Cowboys receivers, but CD lamb is my favorite. Um, I love, I'll mention again, Julio Jones. So if you actually, if you look at projections and look at point per dollar projections, uh, wide receivers tend to come in around 2.5 points uh, per thousand dollars salary as the, as the projection, um, <clears throat> as the median. And, you know, proje- guys who are over that are generally viewed as good values. Uh, and guys who are under that are generally viewed as not so good values. So like Mike Williams is projected at 3x uh, right now, which I think is, little higher for him. Uh, Hunter Renfro is massively chalky at 2.6. Um, <clears throat> Jamison Crowder is 2.9 multiplier, and he's pretty ch- he's pretty chalky. Uh, guys like Steph Diggs, Chris Godwin, Tyler Lockett, DK Metcalf, they're all projected at 2.5. Uh, my boy, Julio Jones, is projected at 2.6. He is, he is the third highest point-per-dollar wide receiver on the slate at 4.1% projected ownership. He is one of my overall favorite plays. Like, he's Julio Jones. Yeah, he gets hurt a lot, right? But when he's healthy, he's still one of the best receivers in the NFL, and now there's no A.G. Brown to compete with him for targets. Um, I love the Bengals passing attack. So I've been looking forward to kind of digging into this, and now you've give, you've you've opened the door and given me my opportunity, and I'm not going to shut up about it. Uh, the 49ers pass defense. The 49ers have been a very run funnel, or sorry, pass funnel defense lately. They are they've been elite against the run. They've been vulnerable to the pass. They've been especially vulnerable to deep passing. Uh, I think they've got like 15 cornerbacks that are hurt by now and i don't even know who's playing cornerback for them anymore but like all their starters are out like they're down i think zeus came out to like two more of their guys are going to miss the game um this week so like their best corners are out they've already been vulnerable to deep passing uh joe burrow interestingly has been the third most accurate deep passer in the nfl this season um, now, he hasn't been passing deep a ton, but he has been the third most accurate deep passer in the NFL. And his receivers have frustratingly dropped a lot of those deep passes. Um, but that happens. You know, what if they're not dropped, right? Like, what if they're caught? God, my, my bankroll would look a lot nicer if Jamar Chase had caught that 90-yard touchdown last week and had dropped it. Um, but his ownership would probably also be a lot higher. So I'm going back to the well. Like, imagine imagine Jamar Chase's ownership this week and the Bengals' offense in general if Jamar Chase had caught that 50-yard t- touchdown. And I think it was I think it was Joe Mixon who also missed one or dropped one. Um, there were two like missed or dropped touchdowns, uh, for the Bengals last week that they should have had, they should have had two more passing touchdowns. Anyway, um, the Bengals passing attack, specifically T Higgins and Jamar Chase is the guys who are more of deep threats. Um, and a little CJ Uzoma, less so Tyler Boyd, who needs lots and lots of volume to pay off. Um, but Jamar Chase and T Higgins, uh, 6.7% ownership for Jamar Chase, about 11% for T Higgins. Um, massive ceilings on both, right? Like their ceilings are comparable with almost any wide receiver on the slate, not named Tyreek Hill or Steph Diggs. Um, so like big ceilings, uh, a matchup that actually somewhat, somewhat sneakily favors them and favors the type of off favors, the type of receiver they are and the type of targets they tend to get um, a, a defense that 
will that should at least force the Bengals a little bit away from their preferred method of attack of, of just running the ball with Joe Mixon like like all the time. Um, I love the Bengals passing attack this week, and it's it's really it's mainly those two guys. Um, I'm also like. Brandon Ayuk is another one where like last week, everyone played Brandon Ayuk because Debo was out and I'm assuming Debo's out again, right? Um, if Debo Samuel misses, why do we not want to play Brandon Ayuk again? And you know, looking at ownership projections and, and, and projection point projections that I'm looking at that have Debo projected out, uh, Brandon Ayuk is projected for under 10% ownership. Um, George Kittle's projected for 4% ownership. And, you know, the, and this, they're going to be, they're going to be San Francisco's best way of moving the ball, uh, assuming no Debo. And, you know, that, that game is actually my favorite game because it's the second or third highest total game on the slate. I haven't looked at where the lines have moved today. Um, it's the closest it's of, of the high total games. It's the closest spread for the most likely to have some real back and forth or back and forth action. Um, the 49ers are, are narrower than normal. We know Elijah Mitchell's out. Debo Samuel, I think, is I think is more likely not than out is what I'm seeing to be is what I'm seeing the, the expectation is. Um, so we have some narrower offenses. I, I wrote in the Oracle that my hope this week is that we didn't get the 49ers injury news before early lock so that it would keep ownership down on their <clears throat> on their plays if people were thinking that Debo is in and, and I was hoping people would think Elijah Mitchell is in. Um, but you know, we we might still get some like we get Debo ruled out late, which might still benefit us from an ownership perspective. But we have, you know, we have two good offenses. Uh, we have a high total game. We have uh, offenses that I think play well, play, play well against the opposing defense. The only real knock on this game is potentially pace. Um, and, and, but you can knock a hole in every game. There's no perfect game to target this week, right? Uh, but both these offenses are capable of scoring in a hurry despite slow pace. So, you know, does pace matter as much when both offenses have weaponry that can score from 70 yards away, right? Like pace matters more in when you're relying on like massive play volume to get there. Uh, when you need a when you need a really high volume of plays to put up a big score, it matters more for guys like Hunter Renfro who needs ten plus targets to put up a decent score. It matters more for running backs that need twenty plus touches to put up a decent score. It matters less for guys like George Kittle who can put up one hundred and sixty yards on six catches. So that's that is my favorite game of the week, and and I, I know I kind of got derailed away from just receivers. The receiver talk led me into this. Um, I took a I took a turn, um, but I I love that game environment. I love the receivers in that game environment, um, and I just think they're kind of criminally underowned. And similarly, uh, I think that Tyree Kill and Steph Diggs are the two highest projected, like highest median, highest highest ceiling wide receivers in the slate, and they're not projected to be unowned, right? But like. Tyreek Hill's projected to be the sixth or seventh highest owned wide receiver. Steph Diggs, like the eighth or ninth. Um, and I feel that that's given their ceilings. I feel that that to me, that's too low. I'd want to be overweight. Those guys, like I always want to be overweight. The guys who can break the slate. And so the guys who can break the slate for me um, for their price, price considered Tyreek Hill, Steph Diggs, um, Tyler Lockett can break the slate. Um, who else can break? Mike Williams could break the slate. We've seen the ceiling. Um, I think that the, Floor is the questionable thing there. Uh, CeeDee Lamb can break the slate. Jamar Chase can break the slate. Um, I'm not really sure who else. I guess you could argue. Well, Tyler, sorry, Terry McLaurin uh, or Julio Jones both have, you know, 30, 30 plus point games in them. So, like, that's the list of 30 plus point games to me uh, that I think is. Oh, and, and DJ Moore. 
So that's like, you know, seven or eight guys that have 30 plus point ceilings. And those are the, like when I'm building my enemy exposures, I always make sure that I want to be overweight on the guys who have those kind of ceilings. I love it, man. Um, Tyler Lockett and DK Metcalf, I covered earlier. I want to play those guys at lower ownership. They kind of are, they are in my list of players that can hit 30 plus. One of my favorites this week that is not generating much buzz, DJ Moore, you covered him. Uh, but I have nobody to add to your list of potentially 30 plus point uh, wide receivers. That is pretty much it. I want to quickly shift the wide receiver discussion to some mid range discussion. So these players all have something in common. Their offenses are extremely thinned out due to injuries, and we can expect them to see some pretty significant volume because of it and either a high team total or playing from behind. So that list starts with Jarvis Landry at 5.4, Julio Jones at Mm -hmm. 5.4, Amon Ross St. Brown at 5.0. Cole Beasley is in this range, but he doesn't kind of fit that same criteria of like more guaranteed volume uh but the matchup does tilt a little bit of that additional volume to cole beasley this week as covered in both the uh end around and the uh game write-up of this game and then the last one in this kind of same demographic of wide receiver is jameson crowder at 4.7 so who are the potential outlier wide receivers from this bunch. Well, I would argue Julio Jones is the potential outlier from this bunch. I like Julio Jones a lot. We talked to all the reasons why, you know, Tennessee has a 26 point plus implied team total. Uh, and that offense is extremely thinned out due to injuries. Even if we do not project Tennessee to be throwing the ball a ton, a large portion of what they do throw is likely to flow through Julio Jones here. The volume guys are interesting for more so for the point per dollar floor that they add on a week with such little degree of certainty. Jarvis Landry, we talked about as a very, very natural pivot off of the high expected ownership from Austin Hooper. We have Amon Ross St. Brown, where the Lions are down their top three offensive weapons. TJ Hawkinson is doubtful uh, with his hand injury. Jam- uh, DeAndre Swift is out with a shoulder injury, and Jamal Williams got hit by the Omicron. Uh, also, Cole Beasley, the matchup tilts um, additional work kind of into his range of outcomes, I will say, uh, because we know that Tampa Bay plays high zone. Cole Beasley has seen the highest target rate per route run against zone this season for Buffalo. And we know that Tampa tries to force uh, passing work to the shorter to intermediate areas of the field where Cole easily works. Finally, Jameson Crowder, I talked to him earlier, uh, fits very naturally with a game stack of that game that I do like, fits very naturally with a bring back to either Taysom Hill or Alvin Kamara. We should note that we should expect some pretty hefty correlated pairings of Taysom Hill and Jameson Crowder this week. So if I am playing Jameson Crowder, I will be looking to do so in a unique way. That's kind of my spiel on these more floor-ish 
middle range tier. One of these, you know, five wide receivers that I just talked about is likely to provide uh, a very nice point per dollar score this week. Any parting shots on wide receiver? Uh, I got one. I'll let you go first, though. Yeah, I'll add a few that I think are. I think you did a good job covering the ones that I think are the most solid, like the least, the 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 best volume, least likely to fail. Um, but I'm just going to try to call out a couple others that I think are interesting in tournaments at lower ownership. Um, Emmanuel Sanders is projecting at two percent ownership as a talented receiver with a strong role in the highest game total of the week. Uh, he's not safe by any means. Um, but if you want a high upside way to attack that game at very low ownership, Emmanuel Sanders is a good option. Um, not safe, not a safe play. Beasley is a much safer play, plays much better to the, the weaknesses of that defense. Uh, if you want another play who has high upside in a good game environment at almost no ownership and pairs well with some incredible chalk, Traquan Smith, uh, under 1% ownership as a wide receiver, as, as the wide receiver one against the Jets. Like we've been picking on the Jets for years. Traquan Smith saw seven targets last week. Uh, he's the wide receiver one of that offense. It's a low passing volume offense, to be clear. Um, so not safe, but like he's got upside. He's fast. You know, he can score from anywhere. The Jets are atrocious. Um, he's interesting leverage off of Kamara, and he's an interesting pairing as a way to differentiate if you're playing Taysom, because most people are going to play Taysom naked. The Saints receivers are projecting for no ownership. So if you want to find a way to play Taysom uh, in a more contrarian way, uh, add Traquan Smith to that. Um, what else? Uh, if you don't want Julio, uh, Nikio Westbrook-Ikine is the other guy who is like the full-time receiver on this on the Titans. I probably won't go there, but I may as well mention a you know a sub one percent full-time receiver and an offense projected to score twenty-six points. Bears at least mentioning. Um, if you do want to bring someone back in that game, Marvin Jones Jr. is still kind of sort of the wide receiver one for the Jags. Like, I don't even know what to do with the Jags. They're such a dysfunctional team. Um, they don't play their guys who like they should be playing. Like they're just they're so they're so poorly run. Um, but Marvin Jones it's 4,500 is the wide receiver one. LaVisca Chenault uh, is you, the guy who's like upside. We keep or I keep chasing all year. Um, I don't know if it's still there, but I think that that's another one that we could you could at least consider. Um, <clears throat> Donovan Peoples-Jones is, if you want to get cheap, Donovan Peoples-Jones is a sub 4K wide receiver who has a real ceiling. And again, when you're when you're getting into like the sub 4K range, make sure you're playing guys who have real ceilings. Don't play sub 4K guys where a great game for them is 14 points. And you're like, aha, he got way over 4X because he was only 3K. Like that's pro- probably still not winning you a tournament. Um, but I think that DPJ, he's got a 20 plus point ceiling. We've seen it in the past. Um, I would look at, um, <clears throat> I would look at what's, God, was it Brian, Byron Pringle, um, is a low owned way to get exposure to that chiefs game. Highest team total of the week. Byron Pringle has been usurping, um, Michael Hardman's role. Michael Hardman is being phased out of that team. And Byron Pringle is stepping in at no ownership. He's fast. He can, you know, he's one of those, you know, potentially score from anywhere guys. Like the matchup doesn't favor wide receivers that much, but that's still a it's a 29 point total. And he's got Patrick Mahomes throwing to him. I think he's worth at least thinking about. Uh I will just I will note Amon Ross St. Brown is he just feels a little fragile to me uh because 
he was on, he, he has had, he's basically disappointed the entire season and he was on his way to another disappointing game last week until the very last drive. And I think he caught like four, he got like four balls on that last drive, including a touchdown. Um, so he got like half his fantasy production on the last drive and, and good for him. And he's, he's talented and he hopefully has a bright uh, future ahead of him. Um, but if you want to play a line, if you want to play a Lions receiver, which personally, I probably don't. Um, but I will just note Josh Reynolds had like the same number of targets as, as Amon Ross St. Brown until that last drive. Um, Josh Brown, uh, you know, had almost as many yards as St. Brown, despite fewer catches. He did have a, touch, a touchdown opportunity. So, you know, he's another angle, but I will say that for both, both Reynolds and St. Brown on the road at Denver, I'm just, I'm concerned about the ceiling. I'm concerned about if they really have like 20 plus point ceilings there. And I'm, I'm not sure they do, but that's me. Yep. Completely valid. I love it, man. All right. We talked about tight end. Let's wrap up some defense discussion, open it up for questions. And we actually did pretty good on time this episode. All right. <laughs> right the my top two players at the defensive position this week are the Denver Broncos and the Carolina Panthers. These are two home favorites. These are two defenses uh, who we know have been very, very good against the pass. Um, and Denver is super interesting to me from a leverage perspective because we know there's a lot of people going to be playing the Seahawks at 3.1. We know that there are going to be a, a significant you know, portion of the field that is going to be looking for that pay down defense, which kind of reduces the allure of the Panthers a little bit for me. Uh, but the Panthers are very much in the mix this week against an Atlanta offense that is very, very hit or miss. The another interesting thought about Carolina is how effective do we expect their offense to be in sustaining drives, which obviously puts less strain on their defense. So there's a lot more guesswork that goes into the Panthers this week for me uh, when compared to the Broncos. The Broncos pay up to be contrarian option of the week this week at the defensive position. They're priced all the way up at 3.8, but they are playing a Detroit offense who scores just over 16 points a game, um, who is now missing their top three offensive weapons at home with Pretty much everyone on the defensive side of the ball healthy outside of Patrick Sertan, but we know that Detroit does not attack the deep areas of the field to begin with. So love Denver at 3.8, paying up to be contrarian. Uh, what say you this week? So I will note, I really hadn't looked at defense until like just now, and I'm just looking. So Seattle is the chalk at 3,100 on the road against Houston. Yeah, dude. Let, let me just note, Seattle has like, 15 sacks on the season. Sorry, one let me turn- look. Turnover per game. One turnover oh, per game. 19 sacks on the season. Like, this is not a defense that gets after the quarterback. And what you need for your defense to be successful is to get after the quarterback, right? Like, you want... The formula for defense is pretty simple, right? Lots of pressure and an opposing quarterback that drops back a whole bunch of times. Like, that's what you need. And, 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 you know, inaccurate quarterback, even better. But what you really need is lots of pressure and a quarter and a lot of opposing pass attempts. So Seattle defense, lots of pressure. No, clearly no. Lots of opposing pass attempts. Maybe let's go look at David Mills. 
So dropbacks and David Mills starts. I'm I'm just kind of picking at David Mills game log. I think he came in mid the game a couple times, but like 28 dropbacks, 21 dropbacks, 29 dropbacks, 43 dropbacks, 32 dropbacks, 38 dropbacks. Um, and if you look at Tyrod Taylor, it's kind of similar. Like this is an ineffective offense that doesn't get a lot of first downs, which limits the number of dropbacks. This is also uh, a somewhat cautious run heavy offense, almost no matter what the game script is. They're kind of like they're they're not quite as bad as the Jets under Adam Gase, uh, but they're not that far off. Like it's hard to project a ton of dropbacks for their opponent here which means not as many opportunities for sacks and turnovers. And on those dropbacks, they're not likely to get a lot of pressure. So that's, I don't understand that one at all. Um, Cleveland, I sort of get, because at least like they're a good defense and Lamar Jackson takes a lot of sacks as the other high on defense. Um, I I love the Denver defense. Like I love, um, I like the New Orleans defense is one of the, I mean, they're one of the NFL's best defenses. And like, again, we, I, I like picking on the Jets. Uh, and you can definitely pair um, Taysom Hill with the New Orleans defense. Like, I think that's totally fine. Um, I like the Tennessee defense. They're, they're a little expensive on DraftKings. Uh, like, if you're playing 3,700, I'd rather find 100 more to play Denver or pay or play New Orleans at 100 less. Um, but they would definitely be in my tournament pool um, that I'd want some exposure to. Like, I love, I just, I love defenses against the Jags. Like, my defensive thing is pretty simple. I, I want, Defenses that face teams that pass a lot, and I preferably want defenses that face teams that have inaccurate mistake-prone quarterbacks, which we know Trevor Lawrence is, we know Zach Wilson is. The Chargers are almost kind of priced out of contention. Like, you would need them to put up the... If you're playing the Chargers, you need them to put up the highest defensive score on the slate because they're the most expensive defense. Um, On other sites, the Chargers are much more viable. Um, and I think I would probably prefer Denver slightly to the Chargers, just if, if they were priced evenly. Um, but it'd be pretty close. So I think Chargers are up there. Yeah, I think Carolina's reasonable as a pay down. I'm just kind of glancing through other ones. I you could I think you, if you really want to punt, um, I think the punt defense of the week, and I just I know people like cheap defenses. So I think the punt defense of the week, if you want to do a punt defense, um, is probably the Houston Texans. Um, cause Russ Wilson does take a lot of sacks, right? Like that's a, that's a defense, uh, that will, or sorry, that's an offense that will give up a lot of sacks and he's not an inaccurate quarterback. So a lot of interceptions is probably not very likely. Um, but he has been pretty bad since coming back, you know, from his injury. Right. So you're kind of betting on like, and I talked, I talked about this last week with playing the 49ers defense against against Russ Wilson, where like you're betting on, you know, is he bad still? Is he still hurt? Is he not fully healthy? You know, is something wrong with Russ essentially? And then the other defense I would play a little bit of in tournaments uh, at extremely low ownership is Buffalo. Um, Buffalo is 2,700. They've been one of the highest scoring defenses um, of in the NFL on the year. In fact, if you just, if you go to DraftKings and sort the defensive position by fantasy points per game, Buffalo is second. Um, they've, they have pretty effectively schemed uh, against Tom Brady in the past. Like, but like Tom Brady has not done well against uh, defenses run by this defensive coordinator. whose name is Sean McDermott. I cannot remember. If, is that right? Um, I think it's Sean McDermott. Um, but you know, he's, he's kind of had Tom Brady. Brady's number and and Brady like we've seen multiple games from him he's been awesome this year but he's all he also has three games of two or more of two interceptions so like he can be gotten to right like I think that that's a reasonable tournament play 
where you're looking for you know high volatility and high upside at low cost and low ownership. I'd like if I were doing 150 on DraftKings, which I can't. Um, but if I were doing 150 on DraftKings, I'd want at least a little bit of exposure to Buffalo. Yeah, McDermott is their head coach, uh, but basically runs the scheme of the defense. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I love it all around. Before we jump into questions, and I think we're going to run the questions this week. I don't see Aaron. I yeah, think he's Aaron's got a... Uh, he's, yep. he's holidaying. Um, holiday inning. Uh, he's probably, he's probably at last feast of strength. Or feasts of, uh, for feats of strength. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Perhaps Aaron. Eat that turkey leg hole. All right. The last thing I will leave you all with is a macro perspective of the slate overall. And I saved it for the end on purpose to give you something to think about this week. And that is the combined ownership of the running back position. Hence at another week where people are more than likely to up their tolerance, we'll say, of three running back builds. And on this slate, we do not have the same level of certainty at the running back position and we also don't have a high degree of certainty at the wide receiver position so with wide receiver being the higher variance position it makes sense on a week like this to utilize the wide receivers in the flex to give us higher uh top end in our range of outcomes from our roster as a whole so i'll leave you with that and we'll jump into some questions yeah, I'll just know that's I fully agree with that. Like I in my 150 on Yahoo, I think I'm just going to X out uh, running back in the flex this week. The position is just much more fragile. Yes, sir. And that's uh, again, we've seen two or three weeks in a row where running backs in the flex was uh, the higher EV way to go um, from a, you know, if we could play that slate out 100 times. And that is 100 percent the opposite of what we have this week. So keep that in mind as you're building this week uh the first question is from watton watton what watton yeah yeah yeah. uh i'm debating if debo is active tomorrow how does that impact jeff wilson as a play does debo take the targets goal line all that good stuff that we've seen from debo uh in his kind of semi wide receiver slash hybrid running back role my answer would be yes it likely dents jeff wilson's um expected touch range of outcomes um, but he, it, so that would basically be a ding to his floor. We're playing Jeff Wilson for the potential ceiling that he provides at such a low price, uh, which would be less affected by the return of Debo. Uh, but definitely it would affect his floor and make him, uh, make us give us something to think about and reconsider when, uh, clicking Jeff Wilson's name here. X, what say you? I want to note that Debo has not been getting goal line carries, right? Debo's been scoring from like 10, 15, 20 yards out when they give him carries. Um, so, I mean, he does he does definitely impact Jeff Wilson's floor, right? He probably would get a handful of carries that might otherwise go to Wilson. Um, but I also agree with Hilo. He doesn't impact his ceiling, right? Like, what we care about in tournaments is ceiling. It, what we care about in cash is floor. So if you're playing cash, it... I still think Jeff Wilson is probably too cheap to get away from in cash um, as the RB one for a run heavy offense at like, you know, near min salary. I think it's just really hard to get away from him in cash games. Um, but I think in tournaments, you, you care more about ceiling. Uh, so like it wouldn't really impact my thoughts on Jeff Wilson, where I think it might impact my thoughts more is actually with Jermichael hasty because Jeff Wilson is going to be the RB one and is, and we've seen Jeff Wilson, like when he, 
seen like you know Elijah Mitchell, Jeff Wilson, whoever the RB one is for the Niners, when Debo's been healthy and getting a few carries, like they're still getting a solid workload. Um, but I think it takes away from the appeal of the RB two. I'd agree with that. I like those thoughts. Uh, uh, next question from Crazy Coop. Dante Johnson is now out for the 49ers at quarterback. Cornerback Josh Norman is their other quarterback, if I'm correct. Is this something that we should be paying more attention to? This looks to really benefit the Bengals quarterback wide receivers. No, I would say 100%. Um, I didn't expand on Zandemir's thoughts on Cincinnati and San Francisco because I pretty much agreed with everything he said. Um, and this just goes to serve as another injury to that backfield or to that secondary that is really reeling right now. So definite boost to the game environment overall, definite boost to the expected pass game production for Cincinnati wide receivers. X. Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think that question came was, was put in before uh, I talked about that game, but yes, because I saw it and yes, I totally agree though. Uh, it's, you know, it, it's, it's one more notch in the favor of the Cincinnati passing attack. Yep. Um, and obviously they have uh, Emmanuel Mosley out um, and a bunch of more injuries along that secondary. So uh, digging that question, searching through here real quick. Uh, oh, yeah. Sorry. I saw you responded to Crazy Coop already about that, that we're going to talk about it. Anyway, um, I don't see any other questions that we did not cover already. If uh, there are, we'll open it up to. Uh, Live questions, if anybody wants to raise their hand and come on up. Well, all right, all right, all right. Dude, we shaved off 15 minutes from our normal range. That's pretty good. Wow. Go us. Look at this. We're getting better at it. It only took to week 14, but we're getting, uh, we're getting efficient. <laughs> yeah, we might be down to an hour and 40 by 2023. <laughs> <laughs> Well, as always, right, I'll be hanging out in Discord uh, tonight, tomorrow morning. So hit me up there. We'll continue the conversation. I will. Uh, I will be there as well. Everything is done for the week and nice night. Somebody go take a bath and uh, and think about football for me. That's going to be my challenge to you. Well, I want to pull. I want to see some JM. Some people pull JM, a JM isn't in the chat. Right? He's not on the call. Right? He's not here. <laughs> yeah. He he usually listens to these uh, after the fact. So. He'll probably chuckle so. uh, later tonight. All right, y'all. That is going to do it for week 14. Stay uh, safe this weekend, and we will see you at the top of the leaderboards. Mm-hmm.